The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. When I was little, my grandmother, who would take me to her Southern Baptist Church in the dusty town, when it was a dusty town of Hobbs, New Mexico, imparted a few key pieces of wisdom. Prayer before bed, the love of Jesus and God and their omnipresent loving presence in my life, which though I have interpreted differently at different times, still is something I feel pervasive in the universe, that presence and love. And this, her reminder to me, I'm not remembering under what context or circumstances, her reminder, your body is a temple, Vanessa. Your body is a temple, she would say, and I'm not sure exactly what she meant because she never unpacked it, but I think she tried to show me. Other than smoking, Marie treated her body with respect. My husband has this saying, he says, if you know only one thing, a way to give one example of a person or a reality or a truth by just giving one paradigmatic example that encapsulates a larger truth or pattern. And I would say, if you only know one thing in this regard about body and temple, about Marie, it would be this, this ritual she did every single night. As the last thing before going to bed, she would sit on the edge of her comforter. It always reminded me a bit of that story of Jesus and the woman who insists on washing his feet in her hair and in perfume. Much with that centered presence, she would sit quietly and take out, I remember, this tub of fragrant cream and take her foot out of its slipper, each one separately, and cup some cream and gently, carefully massage it in a full minute of intimate self-care. And somehow, someone who did that for their feet, I knew instinctively, was someone who cared for life intimately. And for me, too. Our bodies, as we've already talked about this morning, they're so gorgeous and we are so complicated. Our relationship to them is so sweet and also so fraught and layered due to so many circumstances and cultural complications. Like Carmen's joy in her ability to kick that red ball, and I know exactly that red ball that you're talking about. And it was a joy, and to play sports as a child, if you did, that body with all of its gorgeous abilities was diminished by others, by that age-old human need to judge and to make ladders and put some bits lower on the rungs and some bits higher up, divide us against ourselves and each other in the most ordinary and horrible of ways. 
But what Sam in the story knows is that each reality has its different invitations and its limits, even if we didn't participate in the magician's 48 hours of choice. But there's something in all of this, something too, in a conversation about our bodies that I want to invite us to, something that feels missing in the analysis of culture, as important as it is, something deeper. Most religions have something to say about our bodies as part of our religious and spiritual journeys. Naomi Remen, in her book, My Grandfather's Blessings, talks about her grandfather, a student of the Kabbalah, the mystical teachings of Judaism, Remen's grandfather, and his Kabbalah taught him that, quote, at some point in the beginning of things, the holy was broken up into countless sparks which were scattered throughout the universe. There is a God spark in everyone and everything, a sort of diaspora of goodness, and one is encouraged to acknowledge such unexpected meetings with the holy by saying a blessing. Remen's grandfather therefore said a blessing for almost everything in his day, apparently. Blessings, she writes, that were, quote, prescribed by generations of great teaching rabbis and each is considered to be a moment of mindfulness. They include blessings like the first time you encounter something, when he says the first time he encounters his grandchild, but also over food, every meal that you eat, when you wash your hands, and even the humblest of bodily functions has its own blessing. Blessings even over the humblest of bodily functions because they say it too is a spark in this diaspora of goodness. That makes sense to me in the Judaism that I understood and have studied at least some of the threads of the relationship to body in that religious tradition. God who created all things tov, good, Sabbath, this day that if anything is about in this deepest, beautiful way, a treasuring and honoring of the body, a day when rest is holy, a day when eating but not cooking is holy, when sex with your partner is a mitzvah, a blessing, the body as a blessing. Islam, too, emphasizes respect for the body as a gift from Allah. That tradition teaches that the body is not something that you own, not something to do with as you want, a possession, but something to care for, a precious loan from God to be returned to your creator upon death. Human well-being, the physical well-being of all living things is your obligation to tend to. And part of Judgment Day in that tradition will include standing and being accountable for how we have treated our bodies and cared for the bodies of others. Would Wayne be in jail right now if we all demanded that this be the rule of law, this standard of care for bodies? But somewhere, 
somewhere at some point in Christianity's development, religion takes a detour. I am not nearly enough of a scholar, though I actually have a lot of books on this subject, and if anyone would like to read them and give me a summary, I would greatly appreciate it. Because I find it fascinating and important, but a thread that gets woven into the teachings of the church at some point is that the body is suspect, that it's lower, that it pulls us down, that it's dangerous, that it's to be subjugated and feared and ignored. Some of that distrust of the body, some scholars of the church credit to St. Augustine of Hippo, who was a Manichaean before he converted to Christianity. Manichaeism being a third century of the common era religious movement that believed that the world was dualistic, good and bad, at war with each other, the material being dangerous and evil. I acknowledge the appeal of that. It's the way the world can feel sometimes, lately. The battle of good and evil, especially when we feel threatened or afraid, but not about ourselves. Life, this life is nuanced and layered, in my opinion. One can see where the holdovers of Manichaeism, though, where they might show up as a Christianity that steps out of this man's life where the body is dangerous. And if you add to that, to that history of a philosophy that had him as one of its top uh, converts before his conversion, if you add to it this man's mother, Monica, who was probably the worst of the helicopter and invasive mothers, who followed him around all over his ministries, and when he fell in love, forced him to leave aside the woman he loved. You can only imagine what the person's notion of sexuality and women, how complicated and dangerous it all starts to feel, and all those feelings of body, mediated through body, how complicated they get. But clearly we can't lay it all at one person's feet, and I don't know the scholarship of how prayers to bless the humblest of bodily functions and Sabbath that blessed sex as good, not just necessary, for fruitful multiplying, how it all got morphed into horsehair shirts and mortifications of the flesh. But it all seems horribly misguided and something that still precipitates and endures in our own culture. I have never viewed the body as dangerous. Maybe I have my grandmother to thank for that. My parents. I've never seen the body as something to be reviled. The loving God that I knew was the God who gave us this tremendous gift, this miracle. Eyes, think about it, just the eyes sometimes I think. It's astounding in its construction, in its capacities. Or the immune system, those wild macrophages. Whenever I read about them, I'm amazed at these pieces of us that are chasing, chasing down the threats and sacrificing them to engulf our enemies. All of it seems so fantastical and true. And it's us 
It's in us and it's us. And there's so much more that's astounding to me. Years ago, I traveled to Peru with my family. Up high in the Andes, we spent a night, as most people do, who travel to the region in Cusco. Cusco is 11,200 feet above sea level. I read about altitude sickness, that it was a risk on this trip before I left, and that in Cusco in particular, you could expect it. To be honest, I was sure that someone would get sick. I was just sure it wouldn't be me. I was the one who worked out regularly after all, so I smugly prepared to take care of my husband and daughter with their illness, and I brought a book to read for the days I would be stuck in the hotel taking care of them, but it was me as the only person who got the nausea and the headaches and the dizziness and the weakness of this altitude sickness. The local cure, coca tea, made from the coca leaves, the same plant, I guess, that is responsible for cocaine. It worked a little, no normal headache painkillers did. But all day it was rough to try and be out and keeping up even a little. And at night, it was horrible. Because, you know, at night when we sleep, our respiration slows down, our breathing naturally, right? Our heart rate slows. Well, at high altitudes, of course, the reason that you and I feel lousy, if we are unlucky enough to feel lousy, is that the air is less dense and there's less oxygen. So you feel bad because you aren't getting enough oxygen, the amount all your systems are used to. But if you put together these pieces of the slowing respiration and the lower levels of ox oxygen, then that means that there you are, exhausted and sick and weak. And when you fall asleep, your breathing slows down and you get even less oxygen, which means that you literally start suffocating and you wake up <gasps> gasping for air just as you drift off, which I will attest is a form of natural torture at high altitude. Well, unable to sleep, the first night that we were in Cusco, I did the only thing I could think of. I started to read every guidebook, everything online I could find about anything I could do to intervene to try and make this better. I read all about what happens to your body at high altitudes, how your body will immediately send messages to your bone marrow to produce more red blood cells so that more oxygen can be captured and circulated, but how it takes four to six weeks for that set of new red... So that's bad news when you're there for a week, right? But I also read in the guidebooks that you should expect to feel better in one to two days. So how in the world did that make sense? Well, I found some Wikipedia article about what happens to your body at high altitudes. There are literally thousands of micro-adjustments that your body does under those circumstances. A thousand changes to cut down on your oxygen use, to slow down the amount of energy you need. Digestion slows down. At a cellular level, adjustments are being made down to changes in the way the mitochondria in a cell will work. Everything in this fleshy temple pitching in 
to try and find a way to get us functional again. I was reading at night about all of them, all these thousands of micro-adjustments that happen, that mean in a day or two, mostly, you're up and doing your average business, the headache under control, 11,000 feet in the air. And all of us generally oblivious to the miraculous teamwork going on inside us to make that possible. I sat there at four in the morning high, probably on coca tea, in a hotel room, still with a horrible headache and nausea, but in complete awe of the miracle of this body. Theologians for a time used to argue for God. One of the major ways to argue for God was based on the design of the world. The world has its flaws, of course, illness, drought, instincts to violence. But I can see how one look at the human eye or the heart, one whiff of any sense that we now know, but maybe they had a sense of, of the thousands of adjustments the body will make and the things it will do to heal itself. It does seem like the work of a genius beyond imagination. And I don't believe that. I think evolution is the miracle at work. I don't think a great watchmaker in the sky has created us, but I see why people went there. There is, no matter how you hold it, a holiness and a sacrality to the human body. Sacredness is this word I don't think we use as much anymore. Maybe it's shorter in supply. The minute we make everything commodifiable, maybe nothing seems like it can be literally sacred or it's harder to hang on to it. Sacred for me are those things that are not just that I know are true, not just that I know are good, but something more, something so precious that I feel reverence toward them and a sense of dedication and a willingness even to sacrifice things that are so dear to me, to you. You must know them in your mind and heart that you won't easily surrender because the whole world seems defiled when we let them go. They're what drives Wayne in his Buddhist teachings and philosophy, his commitment to nonviolence, to sacrifice his time. You should read about the work he's been doing. We'll link to some of the articles about it and risk jail to rescue the animals. Some of them in the stories, chickens crushed in cages so low they can't stand. Animals sick and left to die. One prosecutor comparing them to dented cans. They might be broken, but you're not allowed to steal them from the store. And Wayne said, are they dented cans, these lives? Our bodies, all bodies, like the teachings in Kabbalistic Judaism and in the Quran are sacred. However we describe or come to that, don't we know them that way? 
And they are so for so many reasons, right? They are our fleshy companions that allow us to live and to serve and to gather wisdom and to co-create goodness and to live mercy, love as a verb is only lived through bodies, right? And all of that, they're sacred for all of these reasons because of what they teach us as we live in them and through them in the world. But there's this other additional piece to it that I've been thinking about a lot this week and last. How they are sacred more than anything else, I think, because of the way they connect us to each other. Poet Jenny Cousins writes, the way toward each other is through our bodies. Words are the longest distance you can travel, so complex and hazardous, you lose your direction. Bodies connect us, right? Hear a person crying and you are immediately drawn to minister to them because your heart contracts. Hear someone laughing, uproariously laughing, and I challenge you not to have a smile come across your face. See a wound on an image on the computer screen and you cringe and shut your eyes because you feel the pain instinctively that you imagine they feel. We know so much about us as the same, so much of the call to care through our bodies. To lose that, to get alienated from that, to diminish them, to subjugate them, to ignore them, to treat them like machines as we're often instructed to and encouraged to by cultural messages or commodities is to risk losing the best of our humanity and the best and clearest portal to the most intimate parts of one another to be spiritually in danger. The way toward each other, as the poet rightly said, is through our bodies. It's why, I think, why, part of why for sure, why we worry about people in Gaza, but why in particular, I don't know about you, but hearing about people who have no water or no anesthesia in their surgeries, why that immediately moves us to advocate for humanitarian aid, to feel the need, why the stories, the intimate descriptive stories of the horrid and vivid loss, murder, defilement of life on October 7th, why that curls our stomach and curdles what's in it. And we close our eyes as we listen to it because we cannot, we cannot not feel the horror and connection and obligation to minister to people who have gone through that and be in solidarity with them too. We know, we know in those moments, because our sorrow, as Naomi Shihab Nye, the Arab-American poet I quoted from last, year, last week, our sorrow catches the thread of all sorrow and it does through, through our bodies. So if the medieval monks who tore open their backs with cat-o'-nine-tails thought that was the way to God, I think that they were missing 
that the way to God was better sought through the invitations and the befriending of their bodies. Like Audre Lorde and her famous writing on the power of the erotic, that peace that calls us to the part of human experience that is about connecting with deep satisfaction and joy wherever we find it, and feeling how that calls us to seek deep satisfaction and joy with creative engagement with the world and with our whole lives being accountable to creating that for others. Something our bodies lead us to. Something holy. So yes, we in our religious and spiritual lives, we rise in praise of bodies. We bow as priests and priestesses and keepers of these fleshy temples, others and our own, sacred sources of joy, portals to deepest knowing, and what calls us into sacrificial service to. All mediated through this mess of bone and blood and organ, this miracle. Bless us all, then, in the work to stay alive and awake to our own bodies, to all they invite us into, and how they call us out of ourselves to serve one another. May it be so. So I came into this world with a healthy body, so healthy that when I was a few months old, my father sat me in a cardboard box that was labeled pure lard, printed in bold letters on the side. I know there were lots of chuckles, and there still are when we come across the photo. Yet, having my body structure be a source of joking from a very young age in a world obsessed with body image resulted in a kind of love-hate relationship with myself. On one level, I liked my strong body. In grade school, the fact that I could kick the red rubber kickball over the roof of the apartment building at the edge of the playground meant that I was one of the first kids picked for the team at recess. When we bailed hay in the summertime, I could challenge my siblings and neighbors on who could throw the bale highest on the wagon as the tractor was pulling it down the field. And my grandmother appreciated the fact that I had large hands, so she would take me picking cranberries in the cranberry bog, and then I could help her carry the full pails back to her house. My body served me well, and others. And yet this very body whose strength and abilities I enjoyed was also the source of much teasing and many tears. The other girls in my class who didn't get picked first for kickball would tease me. I was larger than most of them and my body developed earlier than theirs. And some days the teasing felt so relentless that I would hide in the corner behind the boiler room during recess. I too began to put myself down 
silently, and often out loud, making jokes about my body with the hope that I would beat others to the punch. If I did it first, maybe the sting of others doing it wouldn't hurt so bad. That tactic didn't really serve me well, as my negative voices remained long after the voices of others moved on. As I lived with Kay Jorgensen, my friend and co-founder of Faithful Fools, through the slow, debilitating process of Parkinson's disease, and I grieved the rapid decline of our close friend and fool, Jackie Heider, who died two weeks ago from ALS. I do not take my health nor my physical ability for granted. And ultimately, I don't take life for granted. I haven't really thought much about my body as a significant part of my spirituality. And yet, the reality is that my relationship to my body, often through the via negativa, has been central to my journey toward freedom and wholeness. And most importantly, appreciation and gratitude for the amazing miracle of bodies, no matter their shape or size or varying abilities. I don't know what I will yet experience. Still, I will go forward with the words of Ram Das, who said, take every experience, including the negative ones, as merely steps on the path and proceed. <laughs>